Welcome in, everybody, to Sad Times. Yes, it's that time of the week again when you get to hear me say, welcome in, in my best radio voice. Uh, my name is Kevin. I'm the host of Sad Times. For those of you who have never um, listened to Sad Times, let me give you a little primer kind of on what it is. Each week, uh, we have a guest on, uh, and that person uh, bravely shares times when they were sad, upset, angry, anxious, uh, dealt with some really difficult things in life. And um, they tell their story about how they acted, how those around them acted sometimes. Uh, and the goal of Sad Times is not to fix it. It's not to solve the problem, nor is it to diagnose the problem. It's simply to allow uh, for these people to tell their stories so that anybody who's listening, um, you know, might might feel less alone and, and realize, oh, I thought I was the only one who was going uh, through whatever um, the speaker is speaking about. So that's kind of what the show is about. Um, this week, uh, we do have um, a an interesting uh, advertiser here. It is uh, – the passage of time, the passage of time is paid to be on the show. All right, let me see. Let me read this ad copy. We don't even know why we're expending capital to advertise on this program because there is nothing you can do to stop the passage of time. Not money, not silicon, not a podcast about sadness, nothing. Therefore, this will be the last week we sponsor this show or any show. We get enough free advertising lurking in the corners of each and every one of your listeners' existential dread. Wow. That's fucking intense, man. Well, at least, hey, at least we got them to sponsor one one episode. Thanks, The Passage of Time, but no thanks for everything else, jerk. Okay, uh, so that's our, um, our uh, advertiser. And if you are interested in being on the show, you can always email, K, uh, excuse me, uh, sadtimeskc at gmail.com. Uh, sadtimeskc and king, c as in cat at gmail.com. Uh, and if you are interested, we can let you know how it works and, and see if that's something that would work for you. But without further ado, let's get to, uh, this week's Jeff. This week's Jeff is a guest. This week's guest, uh, his name is Jeff. How you doing, Jeff? Hi, how you doing, man? Man, I'm hanging was, in there. Uh, that, I, I, that was, that was a really good sponsorship. I, I have a sponsorship, uh, it's called the bitter end. Um, the bitter end. They don't ever really, yeah, they just kind of always Lock me off before they send me anything. So, man, you know, you'd think we'd learn, but hey, I'll take this is America, buddy. Advertisers no, forever. I'll take the money wherever I can get it, you know? That's right. Right. A good lesson is never worth a nice time. That's right. That's right. The bitter end. So, Jeff, um, now you and I, uh, I know we've spoken before, but I've never met you in person. So, I, I wanted to start off by saying thank you so much for reaching out and, uh, you know, expressing your interest in being on the show. Uh, sure. and I'm, I'm really excited to, to talk with you today. Um, so with that, you know, let's get started again, since we don't know each other, tell me about, you know, where are you from? What was your childhood like? I know that's a very broad question, but we'll kind of start there and, and go from there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, just to like give a heads up, I'm a retired, um, combat soldier uh spent oh, wow. 18 years in the military but going going all the way back to the very beginning I'm, i was born in new jersey uh in the uh the great year of 1977 where i always tell people the two best things that came out in 1977 was first star wars and then star wars and <laughs> so i was born then and uh basically the giant star wars geek but grew up in new jersey and it, my, my childhood it, it was one of those things where at the time you weren't sure if it was a good or bad childhood. Yeah, because um, you, you maybe you couldn't like you didn't. This is just your reality, so you didn't. Maybe it yeah, wasn't that yeah. bad. You know, I I was kind of very aware very early on that you know 
full house was not really how life was. What? So I didn't have that misconception that I had a bad life because I didn't, I didn't compare myself to what was on TV. So I didn't know, um, didn't take me, took me to about high school when my, when my friends would start telling me about how, how, uh, dysfunctional, I guess you can say my, my home life was. So I grew up in a, in a household that, uh, my mother had had me at the age of 17 and, uh, she had gotten married a few years after having me and her husband was nice enough guy. There's nothing, I have nothing bad to say about him in any aspects other than him being an enabler to my mother's alcoholism. Uh, but they had, I had two younger sisters mm-hmm. and yeah. So, I mean, 19, you know, 1980s, early, early 1990s going through a back when alcoholism was really what alcoholism, what the movies kind of show it is. Um, yeah, it was a, uh, it was a little rough growing up. So, I mean, what I do you wait m- to get the hell out of there. What do you mean by that? Like, um, you mean like back when it was, what do you mean by that? When alcoholism well, was really you, alcoholism. You remember, you've really kind of like, they didn't really skirt around, they skirted around alcoholism in, in popular culture. If you remember, there wasn't a lot of yeah. openness about stuff like that. And every time you would see that, you know, after school special about alcoholism, it was, it was tampered down and toned down to just being a yelling father who's drunk and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, and nowadays we have, you know, a very open woke society and you see a lot of these horrific stories about mothers and fathers and kids and cousins and everyone that's getting drunk or, or some kind of drug or a drug abuse is going on somewhere and it's a little more open people kind of can see it now a little bit more where back then it wasn't because it wasn't out there as much in my opinion i just don't think people knew like yeah. i wouldn't have known that my mom was an alcoholic until i got old enough to realize uh because it's just the way she always was and she wasn't she wasn't as a physically abusive um i mean she did have her moments but she was she was an expert at breaking down your soul with the things that she said to you. Um, even as a child, you could just, you know, it, it would just tear tear right into you. And as a young child, your mother is everything to you. So breaking yeah, like I said, down it was, it your rough, soul. Yeah. Yeah. You know that that emotional, that emotional damage that, that they'll say? Mm-hmm. I'll give you an example. And okay. this is this is a wide, it's a very open. I say this to everyone when they ask me, what do, what do I mean about my mom being so my mother was kicked out of her home by her father when she became pregnant with me. Okay. It was very, I, there was never any, not, I was never kept in the dark about, you know, the fact that I was a, a illegitimate kid, you know, but having your mom tell you, you should have been aborted. Like everyone said, really cuts to the quick when you're, you know, in a, when a kid at like seven, eight, nine, ten. She would say you know, that, that to you when of, you were, even before you were a teen. I mean, she should have, uh, in my opinion, should have I, never even said before that. I knew what it meant, you know, even before I knew what it meant uh and so, so that way that was almost like it that phrase hurt me more when in school i knew what that word meant when i finally heard that word and got described what it was that's when i had the emotional reaction so i didn't even get hurt by it when she said it it was later on when i learned what the word meant which means she didn't have any any indication at all that she was saying something to hurt you because she knew i didn't understand it she would just throw things out in anger and it, it was it was it was I'll be honest with you, it was just terrible. I mean, what, what would be, uh, sorry to interrupt, what would be something that would maybe lead to that type of uh, um, um, language from her? Well, she she would, she worked, she she wasn't like, uh, she was like, I would guess you could say she was a functional alcoholic. She would work and then she'd get home and she'd start drinking. And during the week, wasn't so bad. But then on weekends, she'd start earlier because she wasn't working. And at some point she would get angry at, at her husband, my my stepfather who adopted me. Um, and once she got mad at him, it was all bets off for everybody else. Everyone was going to pay the price for whatever she got mad at him for. 
And so he worked nights um, and he worked seven days a week. So she would get mad at him. He would leave to go to work because he had to. And then he was gone. And who was going to take, you know, who, who was going to be her sounding board? Who was going to be their, you know, the, the person that she was going to go after? Well, at first it was me. And then as time went on and I got older, she would start to go after my sisters with it. And then she now, like I said, she did be abusive physically at times. And it was generally when you stood up to her in any kind of way. Mm-hmm. Well, my sisters, I, I was I just didn't want them to go through all that. So I would plan out my evenings, um, generally middle school on to know right when the moment was that I needed to press her buttons and get her to focus on me so that my sisters wouldn't get it. It's almost like um, you at 7 p.m. or whatever the time was, you were like over here, like, look over here, look over here. I'm doing all these things so that you could draw the fire, for lack of a better term. Uh, from Yeah, yeah. From your, it was more direct, yeah. though. I mean, I would literally go and like engage her and provoke her on purpose because I would watch. I would see how the night was going to develop. My sisters were in their room away and everything was good. Then I'd just let it ride. If she had, if she was angry at my sisters earlier in the day, she would go after her. And like I said, because I didn't know that I was in a bad household for years and years as a child, I'm so glad that my sisters were so much younger than me because had they been closer in age to me, I wouldn't have known that she was a, doing the wrong thing. And I, and I always think my one success as a, as a child growing up was the fact that I was six years older than my young, my next youngest sister. And then I was able to, at that moment, be able to be her big brother and be the person that protected them, which really was something I struggled with when I turned 17 years old, graduated from high school and immediately left to go to the army. And I mean, immediately I, I walked off my graduation field into a car to go to basic. I didn't have a day from the moment I got my diploma back in New Jersey. And, and I struggled with that all through basic, you know, wondering, you know, were my sisters now equipped enough to be able to deal with her, which scared me because the more you were able to deal with her, the more angry she got, like she wanted someone to be, to be hurting for, you know, whatever her reasons were for that. So were you dealing with a lot of guilt then, uh, you know, while you're at basic? My, yeah, it was, it, I think I felt more guilt over the fact that I felt like I got away. You know what I mean? Like the. And left them there the, to deal with it. Yeah. The weight off my shoulders and I got out of there kind of thing was made me feel good. I was out, I was going into the world, getting away from my family. Now, this is the same family who Jeff Jeff gets accepted to Juilliard for acting, but my they won't pay for me to go. So that's why I joined the army. And so I had all that. And, you know, so I joined the army almost to spite him. You know, like, oh, you won't let me go to Juilliard. You won't pay for me to go to Juilliard because you think acting is stupid. You know what? I'll join the army. Now, they, they tried to pretend like they didn't care or they didn't want me to do it, but I was 17 years old. So they had to sign for me to go into the army. Right. And they did that. They did that willingly with no problem. So. I never really got a good emotional, I guess a good, I never learned how to emotionally interact with other people and spent much of my high school when I was old enough to do this at my friend's house. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, something you said a minute ago, like, uh, I'm going to paraphrase it a bit, but you said the only, one of the only successes of your childhood was that you were able to help divert, um, you know, anger away from your your sisters um Mm -hmm. i totally understand that it it made me think of a flannery o'connor quote which i'm going to butcher where she said something to the effect of anybody who survives childhood has enough uh material to write for the rest of their lives um and i i think it's a good reminder that for somebody who it sounds like you had to learn a lot of ins and outs that a lot of people maybe on that block hopefully children on that block were not having to learn so i think um you know just to give you a, a outside looking in, like I, I think you did a lot that a lot of people 
maybe would not be uh, able to do. So I, you know, kudos to you for that. Um, and, uh, you know, you said you went into the army, um, and did that immediately change like your feeling about yourself? Like, did it, did it give you more drive, more self-esteem, et cetera? Uh, Initially, initially, no. So when I first joined, I wanted, you know, everybody wants to do something more. They want to be something cool. And, and, you know, I, I feel like I know me and Brent are close to the same age. I know you're probably about the same age. We lived, we grew up in the time of Arnold Schwarzenegger and you're goddamn right and, we did you know, all that kind of stuff. And so like Rambo and all them movies, it was always like, that's what it's cool. That's what's cool about being in the military. But you look at that, you know, those movies and you're not Sylvester Stallone. You're not Rambo. So there's no way you're going to be able to do that. I mean, you've been told your whole life that you're worthless, that you should have been aborted, you know, because your parents didn't have you do extracurricular activities or support it. You didn't play sports a lot. So you didn't get, you know, early athletic development. Like it says all my major athletic development, you know, 150 pound skinny little five foot eight kid who was not a bullied in high school, but I wasn't the popular kid either. I was kind of like in the middle and I go off to the army and everyone's like, he joined the army. And so I tried to sign up for the best that I think I could do. And they said, oh, you can go airborne. You can jump out of planes. And I was like, well, how hard is that going to be for me to do it? And being a recruiter, they were like, oh, you can do anything you want. And at the time, I just thought it was a recruiter saying you can do anything you want. Be all you can be as the saying goes. But he was right. Yeah, I love the be all you can be thing. Mm -hmm. It's my favorite slogan because it really is be not be all you can be, but be all you want to be. Right. So I got there and I got through basic training got through advanced training to be a combat medic, which is what my MOS was going to be at the time, go to airborne school. And I graduated airborne school and I get sent to the 82nd wow. airborne division in Fort Bragg, North Carolina. And I was so amazed that I made it that, and I didn't, ha- it didn't feel like it was that hard to do it when I just said, I'm just going to not quit, which, you know, in basic training, you can't quit anyway, but airborne school, you generally, you can quit if you want. And I didn't. So I was like, well, if I didn't quit that, I wonder if I could do something else. And so every time I found a new higher calling, uh, I can't be a Green Beret. It's not going to I'm not Sylvester Stallone. So all I'll do is I'll go be a Ranger because they're like a next step down kind of thing. They're, and I sorry, they're a step down their, from Green Berets? Forgive my ignorance. N- now, nowadays, they're kind of both tier one units. Okay. They're both on their own level. But, you know, Green Berets are 12 men on a team in the, in the jungle by themselves, where Rangers are platoons. of They're just the, the best of the infantry kind of, kind of stuff. And I was already airborne, so I qualified to go and i went and i went to what's called rip which is ranger indoctrination program this be honest with you, this is four years after i had joined the army i'd already been in the army three years uh, note to self i'm already married at this point because i found someone that didn't say that i should have been aborted so i married her right away mm-hmm. um and i joined the rangers and i go out to seattle the second ranger battalion and, and i get there and i'm doing well there and get go to ranger school and do all and then then i finally after six years in the army I finally said, well, you know what? Let me just see if I can do it. And what I'm talking about is going to be Sylvester Sloan, going to be a Green Beret. And so at that point, I left and went to uh, Special Forces Assessment and Selection, which is a 31-day walk through human hell on Earth to, to see. And it's basically just designed to throw as many different physical and mental stressors on you and try to get you to quit and try to see how do you react under these physical and mental stressors. And I'm going to tell you what, I, as much as my depression and my my lack of self-confidence and everything that came from my parents 
as much as that was on me, what they taught me was that I can endure almost anything. Mm. So I just won't quit because if I quit, then you win. You can say whatever you want to me. You can break me down. And it's literally, it was every, my wife told me once, she was, everything you do is to prove your mom wrong on some level. She's like, what are you going to do when there's, when you don't have that anymore? Um, so did you yeah, know how to I answer that question for a while? I still don't know how to answer yeah. that question <laughs> uh, I, <laughs> because it's, I, I made it. I got selected. I became a Green Beret and, wow. and immediately as soon as I was, when I was in the Green Beret training program is when 9-11 happened. So, you know, there was, it's like just about the time of my life where I was starting to really understand who I was and, and be kind of content with who I was and note to self, I don't have a relationship with my family at this point because I don't talk to my mom because of who she was. Wait, so you're um, sorry to interrupt you, Jeff. So you're about 24 at this time. 26, 26. 26. Okay. And so also when I finished, when I finished the Q course, I was 26. It's a two year course. Another way that another thing that you and Brent have in common is Brent has a green t-shirt on and you're yeah. in the green berets. So it's like the same thing, yes. right? Yeah, um, no, it's well, green clothing, green clothing. Time. And also uh, to anybody the out there who doesn't think that they can be a cop and pose as a kindergarten teacher, I'm here to tell you that you can. Richard Campbell is a hero. Anyway, okay. So 9-11. Yeah, yeah. Oh, it's not a tumor. Um, 9-11 happens. You are already mm -hmm. in, you are already uh, an active Green Beret when that happens? No, 9-11 happened when I was in training. When you were in training, so excuse actually, me. Okay. Yeah, so I was in the, the, the Q course is broken up into a bunch of separate schools that are all qualifiers for you to be awarded the Green Beret and given your special forces tab. And uh, I was in the second phase. So a, a, a selection had happened. I got selected. The next phase is what's called small unit tactics. It's basically ranger school again, but done for SF guys. And it was during that program that I was there the day that 9-11 happened. Now, so basically, while you guys all saw 9-11 happen on TV, mm -hmm. um, I never saw it on TV. We were, we were isolated in training out at this fort, um, Camp McCall out here in North Carolina. And you don't have access to a TV, but you do have access to radios. So we heard everything that happened, but we never saw it. And we were still only two weeks into the being out there of a six-week lockdown. So four weeks later, when I got out, much of the worst stuff that you guys had seen on TV, you know, I never saw. You've never um, seen like the planes hitting the towers? The, the I've seen the footage of it since then, but there's but, a lot of but, like the people jumping and all the stuff that yeah, happened live. Mm -hmm. um, I never experienced any of that. So all my experience with 9-11 was just that I knew that I had to get finished so I could go to war. And I even, because I was a medic beforehand, I was going to be in the medical course and be a Green Beret medic. I actually went to them and said, look, I can't spend another three years here for that because that course is long. Um, regardless of the fact that I'm like four credit hours from being a physician assistant, I want to go be a weapons sergeant because it was shorter. Mm -hmm. And they said, no, they're like, you're the highest qualified guy for going to the medic course. And I'm like, well, I'll quit then. And they're like, okay, then go to the, med the, the, the one course. And so I went to that one and got out of Green Beret training earlier than I would have about 2003. And, uh, yeah, and then right about that time, I guess I'm assuming because they know that war is coming for it. My, my parents try to reach out and reconcile with me. So and let me, let me interject there real fast, Jeff. And I apologize. Yeah, yeah. You had mentioned, no, no, had you told your parents you weren't going to speak with them anymore? Um, we had had a falling out sometime when I was, I think it was right before I left to go to Ranger Battalion. Um, they were upset about something or another, uh, probably the fact that I got married and didn't tell anybody about it. Mm -hmm. Um, but my mother had just said some really ugly things to me on the phone one time and I hung up on her and I just didn't talk to her again. And she would, uh, 
you know, they would call and they would try to get in touch with me, but I just wouldn't pay him any attention. I get done with the Green Beret course, get back, and you know, my wife's aware. My son is at this point four or five, and she's like, "Look, um, just you, you got you, you got to say something. You got to say something to him. Um, there's no closure there." She goes, "You need to either talk to them and, and tell them that it's that you're done with them, or you need to talk to them and try to work it out because you're going to go to go off, and I'm going to be." The, and basically, she was like, "I'm going to be the one here." who is now going to be the person that has to deal with them just because I am not going to be sure. She's a military brat. Her dad was in the army. uh, Like I'm not going to ignore your parents when you're off fighting in a war. Had they been reaching Um, out to her as well to try to to talk to you? I had to assume that they might have, because that would be really the only, they, they really, my mom hated her, you know, as much as my mom went after me about stuff, she, I was her only son. And so everything, you know, the cliche ish mama's boy thing, applied so she didn't she wasn't gonna like anyone i got married to but especially someone who literally was the complete opposite of her Mm -hmm. um was a caring person who really thought about other people was not raging alcoholic um when she got angry she worked it out in a meaningful you know effortful way you know like a constructive way not not a destroying you with words or worse way so like she, her first time she ran at her, my mom, my, my mom had a run at her and she handled my mom in a way that I'd never seen you before. She just looked, she was like, I understand you're angry. Please stop saying hurtful things. And that's, and that like set my mom off. And I was just like, well, you know what? I'm like, you dealing with her so calmly made it worse for her. But right. right. Like, maybe yeah, she won. She wanted the exact opposite. The the reaction to show that maybe she was getting under her skin and that would show that she had exactly. accomplished something. Yeah. My mom was an expert at that. It was one of the things that really drove me in my in my special operations stuff was that I could I knew how to get under people's skin because I learned from the best person in the world how to do that. So. Right. So did you reach out to your mom and speak with her before you were deployed? Yes, I did. Yeah. And they came down and visited and, and there was a. It was like everything was good. It was very much that whole battered wife syndrome kind of thing where, you know, oh, they promised they'll never be that way again. And they everything was nice and good. And it was all good because there was nothing there that was a challenge. You know, they I was going off to war. I had a focus. They were the family that had the kid going off to the war. They I didn't realize till later that it was all about my mom being a victim. Like I found out later that she was like telling everyone, oh, my son, blah, blah, blah. It's like she was using me as like a a cause for people to feel bad for her, um, which, which always annoyed me, but I, Hey, that's your, whatever you got to do to get through it, mom, that's fine. Do that. And I was all right with it at the time. Note to self, this doesn't, this, this relationship with my mother doesn't end up good in the end of the story. So uh, I find all this stuff out later on after the second time that I no longer, that I cut, cut ties with her. Well, um, well, I guess we'll hop ahead. When, when was the second time you cut ties with her? Uh, my wife, um, note to self, I had been deployed. This is now we're jumping ahead another eight, nine years. Sure. Um, I'm in, I've had eight deployments or no, I'm sorry. I've had four deployments of my total of eight Jeez. at the time. And I had taken a break. The, the army had been, you know, we had a lot of guys deploying all the time. And as an SF guy, you don't, you don't deploy for the 18 long deployments that a lot of these 18 month, mm-hmm. 12 to 18 month deployments, we would go for six months, come back, go back in for six months. And the reason why they did that is because we had our, our op tempo was so much higher than the standard unit. You know, an 18 month tour for a infantry unit in Afghanistan, you're going out and doing a mission every week or two weeks. We go as the, as special forces, we're, we're going out every day. Wow. And you're going out every day with just 12 guys, maybe six guys. 
with you know your local your local uh, fighters that you're working with or doing your direct action missions going after high value targets so you're constantly on on a ongoing and you know when the infantry group and uh, and this is every soldier that serves has a hard time i don't want anyone to think i'm saying that oh we had it worse than them but they had a much higher casualty rate but we had a debilitating casualty rate because when you have a 40 man unit and you lose someone 38 men are almost enough to get the job done. When you have 12 men and one IED kills three of the men on your team, you're now down to, you know, below 10 and you're still, in, you're not getting pulled out of country for losing three guys that you're literally brothers with because you're with them every moment of every day and they, you put your lives in their hands. So we have emotionally, it drags us, but we're not allowed to, be emotional because we have a job to do. So there was a lot of emotional stuff that was building up. And at the time I felt like I was handling well mm -hmm. and I, and I was handling as well as anyone else. So I get home. Um, I'm home for a, a year and a half because they made me an instructor to teach people because they wanted everyone to have a break. And towards the end of it, my wife gets pregnant again. And this time my parents are talking with us. At the, we're, we have a relationship at this time for this much. They weren't, we hadn't spoken to them when my son's pregnancy had come all the way through. They, they met my son when he was a year old already. Okay. Um, and my mom starts being, I don't know if it was over like being helped. She wanted to be more of a part of the whole process, mm -hmm. but I mean, I'm going to tell you a story. This is, and this is, I'm not even exaggerating how this goes. My mother wants to buy a bassinet. She's like, I'm going to get you guys a bassinet. And this is what my wife said, Ellen, we, we didn't use a bassinet. Um, why don't you use whatever money you're going to use in the bassinet, get something else that, that the, we're going to use because mm -hmm. I don't want to waste. I don't want you to waste your money on something that we're going to use. And I don't want to force us to use it because it'll be disingenuous. That was what she said to her. Okay. And, and to me, that's a very ex reasonable explanation and not turning it down, not shitting on what you want to give us, but it was a, Hey, look, we don't want to hurt your feelings by not using it. But we don't want to take it. We don't want you spending the money on it. We want you to, if you want to do help, spend it on something else. Mm -hmm. Well, my mother turns that into my wife being a horrible person. And she goes after my wife one night when I'm at work. And my wife had to get blunt with her. Mm -hmm. And my mother told her basically the thing about that she said to me when I was a kid about abortion, except she said it to my wife about my wife and her two kids. Who are my two kids, by the wait way? Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Sorry. I need to make sure uh, I'm understanding. She she said that she thought her grandkids should have been aborted. She, yeah. She said, because you and your you and your two fucking kids are, are waste of waste of life and should go away. That's what she said to her. Holy shit. So my wife tells me this and I'm like, oh, no. I'm like, no, no, no. Now, my parents had moved down to North Carolina where I live. Mm -hmm. I get in my car and I go to that house. And there is a look in my stepfather's eyes. And I would say, other than being an enabler, my stepfather was a very caring person. I think his enablement of my mom was because he was so such a gentle soul. Okay. You know, he just didn't know how to stand up for himself. Okay. His face said he knew it. He knew what I was there for. He could see it in my eyes. Now I'm in combat four times. I had changed over the years into someone that when I kind of looked serious, he really knew I wasn't the I was not the guy to push back on. Um, not that I was unstable or violent, but I had a very clear, I wasn't going to tolerate certain things. And I told them bluntly, I was like, I 
do not want to hear or see you ever again. I'm like, my children are not going to have exposure to the shit you did to me. I'm like, you can stop drinking and get help. Or you're not going to see me and me and my 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 kids and my wife ever again. And what was her response? She poured herself another Jack Daniels. Okay. Did she say cutting things to you at that time? No, for sure. At that time, she did. But uh, I think I had gotten to the point in my life where her words really didn't. I mean, she had said so many horrific things to me that nothing she could have said then would have hurt me. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So. And then, so how old are you? She tried her best. At this point, sorry. Um, 30, 31. Okay, so about 13 or 14 years after you left, um, they'd come back into your life. And so that, how old was your son at this point, do you recall? Yeah, my son at this point is seven or eight. My okay. daughter now is 16, and they have they had never seen, they had never met my daughter. So, so we're talking about maybe 16, 17 years ago. It was okay. right, right when my wife was about three months from giving birth. Um, okay, so... You said that. Did you ever speak with your mother again? Not one word. And is she still living? No, my mother passed about two months ago. Wow. Well, I, it, everything that you said, I am sorry to hear that. Um, yeah, thank you. Thank you. And so were, so were you I. still in um, contact with your sisters? Uh, that's a good question. So, thank you. Um, <laughs> my sisters, um, along the, the this whole trip and everything, they they – they were stay at home. Now that they, they they were adults, um, but still in early twenties. Uh, they had moved down with my parents. Okay. When I wasn't speaking to my mom, I couldn't speak to them. And the reason why was because if I spoke to them, she would find out and she would go after them for it. So I had to make a really hard decision to not have anything to do with my sisters. And my older sister, the the closest one to me, mm-hmm. in age the one that's six years younger than me, um. About four or five years ago, she started to reach out to me, but it was very strange. She would reach out to me when she was having conflict with my mother. And what it was was she had realized that she was going through the same thing I went through. And so she would reach out to me as kind of like a support system. And I made it very clear to her that I I was devastated that I know not seen my sisters, that my sisters had not seen my their 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 niece and nephew or and, and and that they had kids at this point that I had not ever met. Um, but I made it clear to them that they have to realize that although I did interact with them when they, when they wanted to, and they were, they were invited, they were well welcome to, to take the chance. They were old enough to make their own decisions about what, what my mom thought about what they did. I'm like, but I said, I will not think bad of you if you don't reach out to me or talk to me because I understand what's going on with her. I, I get it. I'm like, I am not so blinded by my own ability to cut her off that I realize that that's easy. It's not. I'm like, so I don't fault you for not reaching out to me when you want to it because it, she'll find out you'll get, you'll get some shit from it. Um, but when she got close, she was diagnosed with cancer, I guess a year ago. Um, okay. My older sister started hinting about um, when she gets close or are you going to come? And I'm like, no, I'm, I'm not. I'm like, it would be unfair for me to show up and make that situation about that when I had been gone for so long for two reasons. One, because you're the ones who are going to grieve for the most and you guys deserve to have that time. And two, because it doesn't change 
what she did. I'm, I'm one of these people that really holds on to the whole, I get very not irritated. I don't want to shit all over someone who died, but I don't think they what they did in life is a race just because they die. We all die. Everyone has that end. So no one gets a pass on the way they acted in life just because they're dying. Uh, and you may have a realization of the bad things you've done. I don't know if she did or not because I never spoke with her. But I also didn't find out that she had died for a week. And, it, um, and you found out from your sisters, yes, I assume? Because my wife made them made them tell Oh, me. that okay. So they contacted yeah. your wife, but not you. No, no. My wife contacted them. How did your so wife? My know? wife had my, my wife had seen it on Facebook. I see. Okay. And, and she she had saw it. Um my, my my son and my daughter both knew. And they watched me. They literally like observed me to see if there was any indication that I knew about it. And uh a weekend had gone by. And then I guess it was a Monday morning. You know, four days after she had died, and I guess my wife had called my sister and said, hey, you need to tell your brother. And her answer to my my wife was, but he doesn't care. And she's like, that is absolutely not true. She goes, he does care. It, and and that's not your decision to make for him, the, whether or not he mm. gets to have that information. And so she told me, um, made it very clear in the, well, she didn't make it clear. There was some tone and some ways that she had said things feeling like they though that they had said to me they understood that i wasn't going to be there at the end that that didn't come that you know that things had changed when they confronted with that situation that i should have come running and forgiven her at her, at her deathbed and i just wasn't i just i just can't do it and so yeah. i was like i i understand you might be a little upset by this but i'm like uh Please, you know, make sure that you, you reach out to me if once once all everything is is happened and everything settles down and a couple of weeks go by, um, maybe we can start to work on a relationship. Well, that that was two months ago, and I've heard nothing from them. Okay. Um, well, how are you? How are you doing with the loss of your mother? I don't know. I don't know. I I mean, ninety percent of what my sad times thing is is comes from PTSD <laughs> from all my times in combat. Um, and I have to be careful about what I identify, identify as conflicting me at certain times. Um, because, because I did have a, almost a break in reality kind of breakdown when I first started developing PTSD symptoms after I was injured. Okay. Um, let's talk about that. Yeah. Obviously, as you said, you had eight deployments and yeah. you were, uh, so w w tell us what your injury was and, and, and what happened. Sure. So please. Just a little bit of background. Um, on my first deployment, the invasion of Iraq, which my, my first deployment, I, I was awarded a silver star. Um, and on wow. that deployment, for Third Special Forces Group, which was a a newer group in the Special Forces community, uh, I was one of two people who got the silver star for the Battle of Debecca, and we were the two highest awarded members of that unit in that unit's history. Wow! So there wow. was a big deal made of it. We got treated like you would like almost like you're a rock star kind of thing where people you know rolled out the red carpet everyone wanted to talk to you i was in the new york times i got i got pinned my my award in the pentagon the uh, general schumacher the joint chiefs of staff pinned my award on me i did interviews and papers there's books that i'm in and all this other stuff so i get to go do pretty much whatever i want so i chose to go do these jobs that were massively high risk like direct action and 
interrogator, inter, you know, battlefield interrogation and, you know, small units that are even smaller than 12 men kind of stuff. And I developed a lot of experience. And then one day, right before my last deployment, not right before my last deployment, but a year about out from my last deployment, I decided for some reason inside. Now, just so we don't, so I don't beat around the bush about it. I killed a lot of people. There is something that happens to you when you do that. Yeah. Um, whether or not it's easy or not, I don't have, let me make it clear. I have no guilt. Um, but there is a, something that's taken away from you. There is something that you do one of two things. You either become really, really pleased with yourself over it and become a horrible person and a monster, or you become somebody, you're, you're become a shell of yourself, I guess is the other word. You know, you're not really the same person that you were. And so I had this epiphany. I just didn't want to drop the hammer. You know, I didn't want to kill anyone anymore. I said, I want to do something that's going to save lives rather than take lives. Mm -hmm. So I went to the special forces dog trainer school and I became a dog handler looking for IEDs. Really? And so my, that's so, I was, that's really, I was also the first, first, the first third group special forces dog handler. So I get this highly trained dog and now I'm gone through this highly trained course at, Oh, by the way, the same place that if you go and see John wick Four, the dog that's in John wick Four came from the same guys who trained me. Um, they're the guys who do all the dogs for Hollywood now too, because of all the stuff. These wow. are the same guys who put the dog teams on the Osama bin Laden mission and oh. the dog teams on the, uh, Saddam Hussein mission, mm-hmm. um, which I, I may or may not have been a part of. And that's as far as I can say about that. Okay. But I go and I deploy mm-hmm. and with this dog and I'm not expecting because you're after so many deployments, you kind of know that you're running. I never got injured. I've been, you know, I've been shot a couple of times, a couple. When I say injured, I mean, I got hit like hit in the body armor with rounds. I got, you know, scuffed up, blown up, you know, concussions, little small things like that. I had kind of thought I'm like, this is going to be the deployment that I that I buy it on. Um, that, but was I that just like a premonition up. you felt like, Hey, I'm now I'm going to work to save people. I just felt like it was, you know, when you play the odds too long, the house is going to win. Yeah. You know, it was one of those things where I was being, I was winning too much money and that ball wasn't going to drop in black next time. It was going to drop in, you know, in the red mm-hmm. or on that green fucking double eight thing or whatever. And, and that's exactly what happened. Uh, six months into the deployment after me and the dog had found. 38 IEDs at what was called Firebase Cobra, which was the IED friggin' mecca of, of all Iraq, Afghanistan. I We had gotten a tire shot out during an ambush, and we stayed where we were at where the rest of the team went to go confront the enemy. But the enemy had backtracked around because they were targeting the dog team because we were defeating them with our ID detection. And uh, while engaging them while they were trying to attack us while we were changing our tire an rpg hit the 240 machine gun that i was firing and threw me off and i landed on my head and got a traumatic brain injury and a broken back Uh, and so i had to get medevaced off of the uh, field back and with all my explosive explosive uh exposures it wasn't just a standard concussion okay Uh, it was a it was a what they call a grade four um, I had problem with speech where I would speak and I would say, I thought I, in my head, I would hear my voice saying the words. Mm-hmm. My wife would have to put on the audio notes on the, on, uh, on our phone, record what I say and then play it back to me into where I sounded like Charlie Brown's teacher. 
Like that. Like, like, you know, like yeah, that? I was like, blah, 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 and I was trying. It, it just sounded like somebody who had lost the ability to speak. And but to you, I you think to, you're saying, "Hi, could you please pass the milk?" As I'm saying it, yeah. As I'm yeah. saying it, I can I can hear in my head the the words right. When it was played back to me is when I could hear. Oh shit! That is that what it sounded like? And so I go into therapy for that. But I've also got other brain injury stuff. So wake up on a Saturday morning. Like it's a Wednesday morning and mm-hmm. I get in my uniform and I leave the house and I drive and I stopped at a local food line, a, a grocery store, because I forgot that I was going to work on a day that I wasn't supposed to go to work and sat in the parking lot of food line for eight hours because I didn't know where I was going or what I was doing. And I was too embarrassed to go home and admit that because I knew that I was on that borderline of being medically dis you know, that we got to medically retire you. Right. And I didn't want that to happen. I didn't want to come off of being on a team because note to self, I started to feel better and normal in combat and felt strange and afraid at home. Why do you think that is? I know why that is. So, why is that? I mean, it took years for them to, to explain to me, but I, I, I the, the best therapist I ever had explained this to me. PTSD manifests itself in two ways. The, tra- the trauma of the experience causes you to have hyper um sensitivity to fight or flight um hormones when they get released and you become fearful guilt-ridden and introverted Mm -hmm. or you start to have your uh, cortisol levels shoot up when you go to combat that's fight or flight Mm -hmm. when you're over there they kind of stay up there the whole time and much like when you take drugs and your, your dopamine levels rise your body starts to get a new normal of what the level of those hormones are supposed to be at. So when you get off of drugs and that dopamine level crashes, you go through withdrawals. Well, when you come back from combat into a normal, safe environment, your cortisol levels drop and you start going into withdrawals. And those withdrawals are what people nowadays would identify as PTSD. So basically, you become addicted to combat. Now, is this something that was talked about before you went over there or was it something that you, no. you figured no. out after you were, it, yeah. We all know that everyone, it was a dirty secret about people having PTSD and, and shell shock and combat fatigue or whatever friggin' buzzword is what they call it nowadays. Um, that we were still in a world where you, that, that makes you weak. That makes you soft. You can't, you can't have that. Or if you do have that, you're just going to suck it up and, and move through it. You don't feel good when you're at home. You feel better in combat? Well, shit, man, we'll put you on a bird. We'll send you back over there. You can go fight again. That's the same as telling a heroin addict when they're going off heroin. Oh, you don't feel good, man? Here, here's just a little bit of heroin. Just make you feel better. It's the same thing. It's just you're perpetuating the thing that's causing the problem. And no one's at fault for it. It was a cultural feeling of this. You don't admit to this stuff. But I I started having some real issues. That my wife was not going to just let go. Um, well, of course, like one of them being you, uh, that that ter- that very sad and terrifying story that you sat in the parking lot for eight hours. Where did you? Yeah. Did she try to call you? Like, were you able to talk with her when you oh, were yeah. there? She she was calling me the whole time. I was just not answering. And uh, <clears throat> when I finally got home, I, I it was at that moment where I had to tell her, I'm like, I know that I'm still recovering. I'm like, but I'm afraid that my memories and, and my my ability to be normal or not going to come back. Now, 10 years ago, when you got a head injury and got a brain da- and got brain damage, that was you for the rest of your life. 
And the one thing that's good about the wars that we fought these last 20 years is that with all the head injuries, they have learned that if you get certain treatment within certain amount of time from the injury, which is 21 days, if you get started into a treatment program within 21 days that focuses on rewiring your brain to relearn things that you're no longer able to do because the wiring is fucked up, you can recover to maybe close to how good you were before. Now, I still to this day have sometimes massive, you know, migraines. I will every once in a while have a seizure, but I was a borderline here and there college class take taking person back then. Mm-hmm. Now I have a master's degree and I was able to do that quickly. The reason why is not because I became bigger, better, stronger, because they put me through the, you know, the $6 million man program, but because <laughs> the brain training that they gave me taught me new ways to learn and new ways to memorize things. And those ways were probably something I should have probably learned when I was a kid, because I mean, I I can memorize shit like no one's business now. Yeah. And especially if you were um, an actor, right? Got to learn those lines. That That was one of the big things that really bothered me was that for someone who could memorize a soliloquy from, from Shakespeare in in a six hour time period um, verbatim and do it better than, better than you know mel gibson and hamlet um <laughs> i went from that to not remembering the the words to, to an alice in chain song now so you understand this I, i'm like a teenage girl with a pop star with that band right that's like my that's my guy so it's my, like my favorite band what's your favorite and alice in chains record dirt is the best yeah. Alice in chains record. yeah i, I agree mean, with I you on that dirt dirt is yeah, really I mean, great I, I really i really do like facelift but dirt is the dirt is the friggin' gold standard so um, matter of fact, if you, we had cameras on, I could show you my Funko pop set up with the dirt album thing. Up here oh, the that's awesome. Um, yeah, I got, okay. So, I, so you, your favorite band, it'd be like, if I've, if I forgot words to a Beatles song. Right, right, right. Or, or here's even worse. I know that the Beatles are the best rock band ever, but when I had my head injury, I was confused and thought that it was actually Elvis Presley. So, I mean, that's the kind of shit that the brain injury did to me. You know what I mean? I knew there was a reason um, I had you on Jeff. Brent, god damn it stop shaking your head um okay so other than that um you know it's quote unquote quote unquote inconsequential to forget lyrics to a song but it's terrifying when it's something that means that much to you uh were were there other issues the one that really this is the one that broke my heart when i got off the plane coming back from afghanistan Uh i had turned to my to the guy that was walking me up to the hospital um because i had to get walked around because i had broke my back in four places I said, hey, there's my wife. Who is she babysitting those kids for? Once I realized that I, I was looking at my kids and I did not recognize my own kids, I'll tell you, man, I bawled for freaking like 12 hours. That, you know, that was when I knew my head injury was real. Um, I didn't know how bad it was, but I knew my head injury was real when I didn't recognize my own kids. Um, I knew that my PTSD was bad when I started hearing and imagining shit. Like legitimately, when your when your brain starts to betray your own senses when you've had none of those issues before. I never had like hearing noise or I never imagined shit or any, and these kind of things that were happening to me felt so real that nowadays, if it happened, I'd be able to identify it as, as a side effect and be mm-hmm. like, that's, you know, the, and I can, you know, you, once you recognize and calm yourself down, things work out when you don't know, and you're first going through them, and your 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 senses are what you relied upon as a as a 
special operations combat veteran for your whole life. It was the darkest and it sad to say, I don't have a feeling of why did you do that to guys who commit suicide? I have a feeling of, I know what was, what it was like and why you did it. And when you say guys who committed suicide, you mean people who are struggling with PTSD? Yes. yes. And do you feel that we as a society, um, talk about PTSD enough or, or, or allow people to feel how, what's the word I'm looking for, uh, to feel normal and not, not worse than for, for going through that. I think we're better. Um, we're better than we were. And why do you think that is? Because I'm able to get on here and talk to you about it without fear yeah. of feeling shamed. Um, that in and of itself is one of two things. One, I don't give a fuck if someone doesn't like what I have to say. Um, this is my story and there's other people out there that need to hear it. Um, but two, there's enough people now who, who know, who understand that right. it doesn't mean that I'm, that I'm broken. It doesn't mean that I'm weak or that I'm a coward. What PTSD is, is a normal reaction to being put in an extraordinary circumstance. It is not an extraordinary reaction to a normal circumstance. War is not normal. Being in combat, having taking lives that have nothing to do with your ability to survive or to find food or to be animalistic and dominant and just doing it for political reasons or what just any kind of reasons a war goes on. That's not normal. It's not you're biologically not designed to kill your own species like that. And it damages people. It 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 rips the 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 more the ethical and moral soul that you have out of you and it's either going to make you a monster or it's going to make you feel like you've done monstrous things mm -hmm. and there's no in between there and there's a lot of guilt over the fact that you've done something that makes you feel a certain way not the guilt over doing it uh, because they they do a very good job psychologically when they're looking for sf guys to find guys who can handle being violent mm -hmm. and handle doing violence on people. And that was the big thing that I really had to get past with it was this doesn't mean that I'm broken or that I have guilt over killing someone who was going to kill me or, you know, someone who picked up a gun and decided they wanted to play, play soldier, you know, and, and so they're, they're not innocent bystanders, but then there's also, I mean, when you can't deal with those incidents of taking people's lives, then when you do have that collateral damage, or you do that have fog of war, you know, mishap, then it becomes so much worse. And I'm lucky to have only had a very few of those, but even those few to this day, they stay with me. You know, there's, there's, there's some out there that are just never going to go away. And so with the PTSD diagnosis, obviously yeah. the horrifying memory problems. And I, I, I will say that um, the fact that you were uh, again, uh, that, you know, they got, I, I believe you said within 21 days, uh, it, it would just, it would be so de de debilitating to me to be told, like if I couldn't remember things. Um, mm -hmm. And so kudos to you for one, uh, be, you know, going with the treatment and two, you know, getting a master's degree, you know, when you, when you have PTSD, are you having panic attacks a lot as well as hearing things? Oh yeah. Yeah. I've got um, now you're hearing the beginning of my story. Um, it's clear to me now as an adult and, and an emotionally aware person that I'd struggled with depression my whole life. Um, part of my lack of self, you know, esteem and 
not knowing how to deal with people in a meaningful way in a relationship because I was never taught that. Um, all of that stuff made me a damaged person before I even got those things, before I even was exposed to the stuff that gave me PTSD. So um, not that that made me more susceptible to it, but again, just like PTSD is more talked about nowadays. Um, I think the fact that, in my opinion, everyone's got something. I mean, mm-hmm. no one's perfect. There's people out there that do a really good job of hiding it. Mm-hmm. Um, but we're very, we're Americans specifically are very, um, it's how, how you present yourself to the rest of your, the world society. You've got to look a certain way. You've got to project a certain amount of stuff. We see it with social media, with how everyone on social media looks like they have a perfect life. We, uh, we, those of us, those of us who are initiated, as I like to say, we know that that's not true mm-hmm. um, because I get people all the time are telling me, man, like, oh, man, you got a really nice job. Um, you know, I listen to your podcast. You do, you know, and, and listen to you on other podcasts and you, you sound like you really got it all together. And I'm like, oh, man, I'm like, you, you have no idea. I'm like, I, I don't. I'm as, as damaged as everyone else. I'm, I struggle with getting out of bed every single day, finding a reason to to get up and not allow my my feelings or my or my chemical imbalances is to make me quit. Um, and which is the only thing I really maintained was that I'm not going to allow something that there is a way to treat to be ignored and then to defeat me because I ignored the treatment out of fear of what it looked like. And thank God that we, us, you know, all of us of our generation didn't have to relive what those guys in like Vietnam or world war two did Yeah, because that's why they're so bad now. Yeah. And, you know, it's, I just won't do that. I, I, I love my kids and my wife and I, and I love, I love my life too much for, for, for that to happen. Yes. I know I'm not, I don't have complete control over it. No one does. Um, but ha- having it, you have to admit that to begin with, that you don't have control over everything that goes on. You cannot control the world around you or how people react or do things. You can only control how you let it affect you mm-hmm. um, and not even affect you, but you can only have, really control how you react to it. Um, it's going to affect you one way or the other. I feel bad about certain things that I can't control that I feel bad. But what I can do is not let that keep me from getting the help I need, talking to someone, opening up about it, or pushing through how I feel to not let it stop me from living my life still. Yeah. You know, and the same thing I said earlier on when I said, you know, you did a lot as a kid really well. I just want to stop and, and, and point out and give you uh, immense credit for, again, one, admitting that every day is a struggle and two, saying I'm not going to let it defeat me if there's a way that I can fix it. Um, it, it as somebody who has anxiety and depression, that is not an easy thing to say, um, no. especially when dealing with these things on a day to day level and uh, where you broke your back in four places. And sometimes I accidentally cut my fingernail a little too close and it hurts, <clears throat> you know, so that's my problem. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Well, I mean, we, I, I had those same things. Cause I, I, one of the things that I really, and, and even now I struggle with this very, very much is I have friends who are double amputees. I have friends who are horribly scarred from burns and you've not met me, but Brent can tell you that if you look at me and just look at me, there is nothing physically wrong with me, but the damage that I have is just as bad, if not worse, because I don't have the world identifying that person has got some shit they're working through. Right. That person's got some things that are affecting their, their ability to do the same things I do. 
we don't have that when we're when we have these internal injuries. What we have is a world that looks at us like, what is what are you complaining about? What do you have to complain about? And you have to stop and be like, I'm not complaining. This is just a fact. And I have to live with this. But my life doesn't get better by the world ignoring that this occurs. Uh, we only get better and we only set it up for the next generation of people to not have it as bad as we had it. And we don't have it as bad as people had it before. But if we don't keep progressing to the point and start making things okay to talk about, okay to admit, okay to have, because you're not Superman, no one is, no matter how much they want to be, then we're failing at, you know, like self-identifying what it is that we have issues with and treating other people that way. And I can't, I understand what people's problems are with that when they say, it doesn't look like there's anything wrong with you. You're right. It doesn't. So that makes it so much worse that there is, that there is something wrong because it doesn't look that way. Um, I, but yeah, it's, it's, that's the thing I struggle with is that sometimes I'll look at Simon and be like, man, that guy's got it worse than I ever had it, but he doesn't, he has it just as much as I do. Um, just, there's no fixing some of the things that were, that we have damaged. You said a lot there in, a, in about the last yeah. minute and 20 seconds. And, and I wanted to pause and just point out how astute that is and how much I, uh, you know, personally agree with that. Um, and as you're coming, as you're coming back with th this horrible, broke your back in four places, horrible brain injury. Did you have like, um, what's what I'm looking for? Unhealthy ways that you were coping, not only with the pain, but with the guilt and, and all of the attendant problems yeah. that PTSD presents. And if so, what sure. were those? So broken back in four places, um, totally a candidate for pain management mm -hmm. while you're injured. Mm -hmm. Um, so this, my injury happens in 2009, uh, and, and uh, I get medically retired in 2011, temporary, and then full medical retirement in 2013. But we don't have this whole wide knowledge of our opium epidemic really kick in until about 2012. Okay. So right about the middle of my, my whole thing. Mm -hmm. uh, at that moment in 2012, I had been on pain meds for since 2009 for broken back for now what is considered to be a, a back that probably needs to be had fused, but I, I still haven't had that done yet. But I wasn't, this is, I, and I, my wife always tells me, she goes, she goes, you don't, you don't, you're not lying about what you say. She goes, when you tell people who don't understand, she goes, you have to be very careful how you explain this. I was dependent on the drugs and I took them at the prescribed dosages I was supposed to take, but I didn't cross over to being physically addicted or going out of control, but I still had any problem because I was dependent on this stuff. I was taking the meds far longer than I probably should have. Mm -hmm. um, and I saw some people and because I had stopped drinking for the whole time I was injured and that now I'll have a drink or two. But you know, when I was younger, I was very much at risk of being just like my mom because I would drink every night, but you know, young people being what they are, that's when we're supposed to be that way. Um, I had quit drinking because I didn't want to, I saw people go down the bottle route of dealing with their shit. And I was like, I'm not going to do that. But I didn't realize I was doing it in another way. You know, the, how's your back feel? Well, it hurts when I don't take these meds. Well, yeah, fucking course it's going to hurt when you don't take the meds. You broke your back in four places, but the doctors never said to me, let's start to wean you off. So I just kept taking them mm -hmm. and kept taking them. And so like five, four or five years of taking two oxycontins three times a day wow so it's not a lot in the grand scheme of when you look at some of these big time 
you know, friends stars who have taken mass amounts. But if I had taken two Oxycontin back in 2008, man, that'd have been a fucking good Friday night. You know what I mean? Like that, <laughs> that'd have been crazy. And I was taking these and just uh, living, just, just maintaining. And then I said, I got to get off these things. And I tried stopping and it was that moment that I forgave every single heroin addict in the entire world. Why is for that? Relapses because the re the, the withdrawals for someone who is dependent, mm -hmm. their bodies become dependent on these drugs. You're not a full on addict where you're psychologically addicted and all that stuff, but you're not going out of control, but you're just taking what you're supposed to be, what you're being told to take, what the doctors are telling you to take. Mm -hmm. You still have massively severe withdrawal symptoms what um, like what well it's a it's a uh it's not a diet it's not a diuretic or a laxative but it, it stops you up right um, by taking pain pills you're you're you you're more you're, prone to you're becoming hold, you're your poop process basically yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um so getting off of it your body is now going to just panic and flush and you're talking about dysentery level friggin explosions going on uh that are just horrific um pain I mean, my hair would hurt. There's no, it's no friggin' reason for hair to hurt. You know, it, it, everything hurts. You start restless leg syndrome. Oh my fucking God. I could not sit still at night. I could not sleep. I'd be up and down and it was terrible. And all that made me feel better was taking another pill. So it was really hard to work my way. And I had to wean off over the span of about a year. Um, because I tried it first cold turkey. That that shit really it, it taught me a lesson. Mm -hmm. Um, the 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 universe said, "No, no, buddy, like you you can't." This is when you want to quit, but you ain't quitting. Mm -hmm. Um, so I had to go back to doctors and come up with a plan. And uh, I told them, I said, "Hey, I need to get off these because I, I I'm getting medically retired from the army. Yeah, uh, I'm going to sometime in life need to be on some other medication again, but." I'm going to die from this now if I don't stop. I mean, I can only maintain taking what they're prescribing me for so long before it starts to escalate. No one ever has a happy ending with this shit. So it took me a year and a half, you know, cutting down every two weeks, the dosage that I was taking to a lower level, wow. getting it down to a dosage that when I did stop, that the withdrawals were only two weeks long, not a month. And since 2013, I have not taken a single pain pill or taking any kind of pain therapy in that in that aspect, any kind of medication, even when I probably should. <laughs> there are moments where my back will go out, um, and thank God I work for an IT company uh, because I can call them up and say, "Hey, I'm working from home." Yeah, because I can't I can't come in, but I will be laid up like that for four or five days, and and you're talking about pain that pain that'll friggin' wake up friggin' the dead kind of shit, and I, I just won't take them because. I just don't want to go through that again. And I, and I we, we, we could see on a day-to-day -day basis on TV, the, the news reports about what this opium epidemic has done to people. And I, I, I could hold the pharmaceutical companies responsible, sure. And the doctors are definitely just as responsible. But these guys thought they were helping a combat soldier who was injured when they were giving me these meds. And they mm -hmm. were, they were doing, they were doing the best they could to try to help somebody in pain. Um, because it did take me to say, or me with my wife helping me to realize, hey, this has got to stop to get off of them. And uh, I'm very lucky that 
that I was able to. Um, but the the downside is now that it's <laughs> there's there's pain that I have to live through. Some, but I, and I lived through it. Uh, let me say that it's not that I'm I'm not woe is me because I can't take a pain med. Um, my pain that I have, I'm able to live with, and that's that's life. That's the difference between our generation or the or the current culture and everyone else was that of course you're going to get pain as you get older of course you're going to have physical disabilities and, and physical issues when you get older but you're not going to survive by eliminating them through pharmaceuticals you're going to survive by learning how to live with what your body is right now and finding ways to do it without having to rely on something that it'd be one thing if it was aspirin or tylenol mm-hmm. but this is stuff that will kill you and yeah i i would say that you know that i that i had a a pill problem but wasn't a pill problem in the in the scheme of i was doing illegal activity i was buying it from people off the street i know that kind of stuff but i was doing it under the aspects of prescriptions that were legitimately filled for me yeah um, just for just for way too long just for way too long and you know uh, jeff so much to be said here um uh yeah, I do want to point out something. One, mm-hmm. um, since you you were seventeen, you've you've been in a life of service, or at least for those eighteen years, right? Uh, you you gave so much, and you know everybody. I believe is not. I believe I'm certain is is very thankful for that. But I I also want to point out that a couple times on this uh, during this conversation, as we're wrapping up here, you have shown um, what I find to be immense amount of grace uh, for others. Um, whether it be uh, the behavior of others or kind of what you just said about like these people that they were just trying to help me not be in pain. And so I think even as you struggle with pain, as you have, you know, coming up, it sounds like 10 years without any pain pills, uh, even though you're having some pain from time to time, uh, I just think it's a huge kudos to you and also a huge kudos that you have gone through all of these things. And I'm sure that we're just scratching the surface and you, mm. you, felt that you wanted to share your story so that somebody else who might be uh, struggling with something similar can know, Hey, I'm not alone. Hey, I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm not going. So I, I just want to thank you so much for that. And, and, and say that I, I really admire what you've had to say. And I really admire the perspective that you've come to on a lot of this stuff. And I, I don't know if I would be able to do the same thing. So I, huge kudos to you. Um, is there anything else that you would want to share with, with the listeners before we uh, wrap up? Yeah. Yeah. So um, just two things. Uh, one is that uh, I don't want anyone to get the, the idea of that I regret anything or, or would do things differently. I mean, that's one of the things my wife says is still a bit weird about me is that knowing where I'm at now, knowing all the things that have happened, um, I would still do everything I did the same way. Um, and not because I did it great, but because as I look back on it, um, I love my job as being a, a Green Beret. Loved it. it was the best job I ever had. Uh, I didn't join the army to, to serve others, but I stayed in the army because I learned to love it and I learned to love what I was doing and, and did it and, and eventually did. But also, I did things the best I could, and I'm not going to regret any decision I make because that's just going to be another thing I have to deal with with this regret stuff. So that is what I would say about my past. Right now, me talking to people about it, um, which which I obviously have no issue with, um, even some of the stuff that's uncomfortable to me, I'll talk about because I have figured out and then I have come to the conclusion that 
if I spend the rest of my life telling everybody that will listen to me about this kind of stuff and somebody out there that's struggling with anything near the same thing, find some kind of benefit in it and says, I can do this. I can get past this because he's just a normal guy. And I am, I'm just a normal person. Uh, then that'd make every friggin' conversation I ever have. Every time I open up and bear my, my soul to the world, so to speak, that makes it all worth it. If just one person gets help. And if you're out there listening and you realize if you haven't realized, I'm just going to give you the clip notes here. If somebody who had the jobs and the things I did with the under athletic short, not the standard guy you would think green Rays would be can get and suffer and then find a way to live with and go on with this stuff. Then so can they, because if you're, if you feel like your life's just normal and you've got stuff going on, well then try to look at it from the point of view of I can do it because I don't have any other obstacles in front of me. If you are someone out there who's like me and has this stuff going on, realize that this is the only way for us to get better is for us to open up and find someone to talk to ask somebody for help because there's nothing wrong with asking for help. Asking for help is a sign of strength. Not asking for help when you need it is a sign of weakness. That's where the sign of weakness is. And that doesn't mean you're weak. It just means you're damaged. Go get help. Talk to someone. Send me an email. Somebody. Don't don't do anything when you're really hurting bad and things are horrible. Give yourself the night to fit, to see if you feel the same the next day. Don't choose to, to go down the road to suicide or take your own life. Wait, Just wait one night. And I guarantee you'll feel different the next day. So that's that's my main message to people. Wow. I think that's a, a great thing to end on. I do want to say one more thing. You had mentioned you have a podcast. Do you want to just tell us what that podcast is and where people could find it? Yeah, my podcast is Hysteria 51. It's in the- uh, Oh, oh no, sorry. No, oh, so um, you host um, a bad podcast, <laughs> I see. No, no, no. Although I have been guest on that show three times. Um, I host a show called Changing Hearts and Minds. Uh, initially was about my struggle to get out and do all that kind of stuff. But then, um, I'm, I have a history, uh, degree mm -hmm. and, uh, I'm very, very into military history. So it's a military history podcast. And me and my co-host, who's a friend of mine from Chicago, uh, from Chicago, from, from Boston, we get together and we talk about really in-depth stuff about, about military history, uh, all, anything that has to do with it. So, uh, and it, you could, it could be found you just look for changing hearts and minds podcast, um, if you want, you can find, uh, from, from, uh, go, was it go forth, go forth productions. You can find me on a couple of episodes of hysteria. Fourth, fourth hand, fourth, fourth yeah. hand productions. Fourth hand. Yeah. Fourth hand, go forth, whatever, whatever it's called. It's a, uh, to me, it's just Brent. Yeah. Uh, I just show up to Brent and you know, my initial thing was I wanted to, I wanted to sniff John, but that never worked out. So, so, but yeah. But. <laughs> yeah. And you know, if you'd like, we'll, we'll put that. Uh, the link or information about your podcast in the show notes. Um, That'd be awesome. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much uh, for being on and no, sharing your story, thank Jeff. You, thank you. Thank you for having me and, and letting me come on because uh, I really do think your your show is remarkable. And um, in a world where we just want to fool ourselves all the time, it's nice to see somebody out there just keeping things real. Well, I, pre I appreciate that. And um, I just want to say the uh, same thing I always try to close with. There's always room for kindness and grace. I think Jeff has, has at least through his story, he's told us today, I've, I've seen a lot of uh, really strong uh, examples of, of choosing kindness and grace, even in very difficult circumstances. And I think that's true of all of us, uh, especially, uh, and at least in my case, it's, it's really needed uh, when dealing with myself. So just a reminder that there's always room for kindness and grace. And um, thanks so much to Jeff. And uh, we will see you next time on Sad Times.
been listening to a fourth hand joint.